Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. is at odds with its European allies over alleged threats from Iran. A senior British military official says that he saw no increased risk from Iran or allied militias in Iraq or Syria. Spanish defense officials withdrew a frigate that was part of an American-led strike carrier that was headed to the Persian Gulf. And the EU's foreign affairs chief called for maximum restraint after meeting with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who wants a maximum pressure campaign against Iran. With me on the line is Joe Serencioni. He is from the Plowshares Fund, and he joins us from Israel. Thanks a lot for joining us, Joe. My pleasure, Jerome. What is your reaction to the way the European allies are approaching the U.S. on Iran? Are they doing enough? Is this um, the right thing to do? They are highly skeptical of the claims coming out of the White House that there is some sort of increased Iranian activity, some sort of imminent threats against U.S. forces, U.S. interests or allied interests. They don't see it. Their intelligence is not reporting that. And you can add to your list the Iraqi officials. They reacted to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's order to evacuate non-essential personnel from Iraq with great skepticism. They say that they understand that there are Iranian-backed militia in their country. They are well aware of them. They track them. But they see no unusual activity. In fact, the only unusual activity that you've seen over the last 30 days have been on the U.S. side. Unusual deployments of aircraft carrier, frigates, um, anti-missile systems rushed in, bombers rushed in. It's the, <laughs> and so from the European point of view, and for many of us sitting at home, what it looks like is that the United States is intentionally trying to provoke an Iranian reaction that could be used as the justification for war. That's what has our allies so upset. What do you make of the claims when Secretary of State Mike Pompeo comes out and says, no, we do not want a war with Iran? What does that mean to you? Uh, Well, number one, it's very hard to take at face value uh, statements from this administration. We know that the president lies several times a day, and so do his senior officials. So you can't trust them in what they say. You can't trust them what they want. And second, not wanting a war with Iran is different from not being willing to fight a war with Iran. And while Pompeo was saying that, you hear very bellicose statements coming out of John Bolton. There will be hell to pay. The president himself has tweeted similar comments. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton is out there claiming that a war with Iran would take two strikes, the first one and the last one, and be over quickly. Very similar to what officials were saying before the Iraq war, claiming that we had to do this. We had no choice. We have to go in. And finally, it shows the important role of the media at this moment to not take these claims at face value. So when the officials say that there are threats from Iran, the reporting should be U.S. officials claim that there are threats from Iran. And it's up to us, outside experts, independent media, to try to run down these claims, to try to verify that demand evidence because we've been down this road before, and we don't want to walk into another unnecessary war. There is so much bluster from the Trump administration, and the Venezuela situation is one where there was just an enormous amount of bluster and nothing happened. Should the media be looking at this and saying, well, there's an enormous amount of bluster about Iran, but nothing's going to happen because it's just too big a fish to fry? You could see it that way. And in fact, there may be multiple sort of factions inside the administration. For example, 
most of us think that Donald Trump does not actually want to go to war, that this is a pattern with him. He talks tough, 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 fire and fury, my button's bigger than yours, and then let's meet and talk. So it could be that for Trump himself, this is just part of a pressure tactic. He claims he would like Iran to sit down and negotiate the mythical better deal. And it's also possible that there are some in the administration, and I think Mike Pompeo might be in this camp, that believe that the pressure alone is enough to make the administration, the regime in uh, Tehran crack, that that pressure has already crippled the economy, um, opened up divisions in the Iran uh, politic, that that could be enough. But then there are those like John Bolton. And John Bolton, who's a national security advisor, is probably the most powerful national security advisor in modern history has long championed military action against Iran. He wrote an op-ed to stop Iran from getting the bomb, bomb Iran. He said at a speech right before he was appointed National Security Council early last year that we would celebrate 2019 in Tehran. This kind of talk makes you think that Bolton's plan is indeed to wage war. And the way to do that is to increase the pressure, ratchet things up so that there's some spark. We know there are hotheads on the Iranian side. We know there are Revolutionary Guard commanders loosely controlled by central authorities who routinely race up to American warships in the Persian Gulf, turning away at the last minute. Will you do something like that now? One of those U.S. warships might fire on you, and that could be the spark that sets off the fire, even if Trump himself doesn't want it. I'm talking with Joe Serencioni from the Plowshares Fund, and we're talking about the U.S. strategy with Iran. What do you make of the acting defense secretary, Patrick Shanahan? Because it almost seems like he's taking orders from John Bolton, or uh, he doesn't seem to push back on the military deployments. Is there something going on there? Patrick Shanahan spent 31 years at Boeing uh, selling weapons. He was in charge of the Boeing Missile Defense Program, for example. Whether the programs performed well or not didn't matter. He sold a lot of them. He's very good at it. He knows literally nothing about military strategy and foreign policy. It's in stark contrast to his predecessor, Jim Mattis, who, of course, was the commander-in-chief of CENTCOM and saw Iran close up every day for several years. So unfortunately, at a time when we would need sound military advice the most, we're not going to be able to get it from the Secretary of Defense. He's in a very weak position. He was bargaining for his appointment. He made two sort of humiliating meetings over at the White House before he was appointed, going over each time, expecting he was going to get the appointment, but then going back with nothing in hand. When he finally gets the appointment, what's the first thing he does? He shifts over almost $2 billion for military funding over to pay for Trump's border wall. So you can see that there's indications of some kind of deal, some kind of arrangement. We have a very compliant Secretary of Defense in place at a time when we really need independent advice to the Commander-in-Chief. What do you think about the way that this uh, spiels out? Because it feels like the United States, you know, is not going to drop the Iranian bone here. I, I've been talking to people, and some people think, well, this is like the end of the Bush administration. There was a lot of talk about war with uh, Iran, and there, it was there for a long time, but it didn't happen. Are we going to go through the same thing with the Trump administration here, or is this something that's going to really turn into a military thing? It's possible this could be all bluster. It's possible it's all an act. It's possible it's just to distract attention from the president's domestic difficulties. If it weren't for John Bolton, I mean, he has proceeded methodically 
since he came on, and uh, I think it was April of last year, first convincing Trump to do what he wanted to do, pull out of the Iran deal that was working, that had rolled back and frozen and severely restricted Iran's nuclear activities, pull out of that, and then every step of the way, almost every month, adding new sanctions, adding new pressures, or adding new coalitions against Iran. And now, beefing up the military options, demanding military options from the Pentagon, options that Secretary Mattis, when he was Secretary of Defense, refused to give him. But now with the more compliant Shanahan, he gets. And these apparently, according to the reporting we're seeing, there's a wide range of options from moving 120,000 troops there to conducting airstrikes to a, a barrage of, of missile attacks. So you realize that Bolton now has the recipe book. He now has the binder where there are options that could be implemented. But I think even John Bolton won't go that far. He won't do a bolt out of the blue. He needs some kind of provocation. He needs a Gulf of Tonkin or, and this is eerie, it could be a remember the Maine moment. If you remember the USS Maine blew up in Havana Harbor, nobody knew what the cause was. It was claimed that there were Cuban terrorists who did it, and it was the justification of going to war with Spain. We've seen some unexplained incidents with tankers off the coast of Yemen. Some people, unnamed foreign officials, are blaming Iran for that. And that would fit under John Bolton's very broad red line, which is if there's any attack on U.S. forces or U.S. allies by Iran, Iranian forces or Iranian proxies, the U.S. will respond. So it's possible Bolton could determine that that kind of attack on a tanker off the coast of Yemen was linked to Iran and therefore cause for action. So we're at this kind of tinderbox moment and we have to get through it before the worst happens. And while this is happening, Congress is unfortunately fairly removed from the action. Remember, John Bolton can't order a war with Iran. The president of the United States can't order a war with Iran. The Only the U.S. Congress has that authority, but the Congress has to insist on briefings, on hearings, on examination of the intelligence to understand whether there is a real threat here or not. And if they don't, they're handing the executive a go-to-war free card. One last thing, Joe. You know, there's something in international diplomacy, your credibility should mean something, right? I, I mean, all sorts of countries say all sorts of things, but you try to establish a credible uh, reputation so that people think you mean what you say. I mean, the Trump administration seems almost immune from this. The the whole uh, Venezuela thing is just one example. They're not worried about what other people think. What does that do to what to this whole situation? Well, for the first time since World War II, we have a president of the United States who doesn't see himself as the leader of the free world, as the leader of the West. And he acts that way. And he sees our closest allies, NATO, as economic rivals. He'd rather deal with these people independently rather than in any kind of European Union, for example. So all his actions are designed to fracture those alliances. This, as it turns out, is exactly what Vladimir Putin would like. So whether he's acting in coordination with Vladimir Putin or not, the actions that he's taking are implementing the Putin agenda. And then, of course, as this happens, 
international confidence in the credibility of the U.S. falls, the legitimacy of our actions falls. You know, the Pew Research Institute has never seen numbers this low right now on confidence in the United States, but support for the United States. It's only in a few isolated countries like the Philippines or in Israel where, or Saudi Arabia where the president polls well. You know, if this is an aberration, we can get over it. I think the United States and the United States of legitimacy and credibility in the world can survive four years of Donald Trump. I'm not sure it can survive eight. Joe Serencioni is with the Plowshares Fund. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the U.S.-Iran situation. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a new exhibit in Chicago. It is Tibetans in Chicago, a story of resilience and success. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A special clause in the Immigration Act of 1990 allowed displaced Tibetans to come to the U.S. A few years later, Chicago had the first members of its Tibetan community. Now 400 strong, the Tibetan community marks 25 years in Chicago with an exhibit at the Noise Cultural Center that opens Friday night. It's called Tibetans in Chicago, A Story of Resilience and Success. With me is Tenzin Jamyang. He was born in Damsala, India. His parents fled Tibet by foot in 1959 uh, during the Chinese invasion. And Tenzin won a visa to immigrate to the U.S. in 1993 when he was 20 years old. He's a past president of the Tibetan Alliance and a veteran of this program in 1995 and 2010. Nice to see you, Tenzin. Thank you, Jerome. And also with me is Jeff Libman. He teaches English as a second language and writing to immigrants and refugees at Truman College. He compiled some of their stories in his book, An Immigrant Class, Oral Histories of Chicago's Newest Immigrants. And 25 years ago, he was executive director of what then was called the Tibetan Resettlement Project. Nice to see you, Jeff. Good to nice see you. To, nice to be with old friends. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I wanted to go right back to the beginning because I was refreshing my memory on this and how tough it was for the Tibetan community to get started in the U.S. They had they, due to the fact that there was this uh, special clause in the Immigration Act of 1990. It was a little tougher for them, Jeff. What was going on there? Well, let's go back first of all. Even before that, there was only one Tibetan in Chicago before 1990, and the Immigration Act, with the help of a lot of Tibetan supporters in the states and Barney Frank, Representative Barney Frank at the time. Uh, found a way to include this special clause for 1,000 visas to be provided to Tibetan refugees living in India and Nepal to come to the United States. Uh, but they were not coming like most refugees with the financial support of the U.S. government. Uh, the clause also mandated that money be raised privately to resettle this population. And this was because the U.S. didn't want to offend China and didn't want to get China. China doesn't like them 
discussed as refugees, and they are not technically refugees in India because of other technical issues. They um, so right, stateless really for the most part. So for political reasons, they were labeled as displaced Tibetans, not refugees, and so that meant that organizations in the United States needed to take up the mantle to figure out a way to manage and finance their resettlement to the states. So you got them everything at the time. Well, we they had to have a job before they got here, a job commitment before they got here. They needed a sponsor. Uh, we needed apartments for them to live in, furnish those apartments. We provided them with English tutors, sponsors, health care services, uh, got them fixed up with language services. And those are things a normal resettlement agency is paid to do normally. Absolutely. People. Most of that money comes through... Uh, the U.S. government to do that for a short period of time. In our case, we needed to raise money to do it privately. Well, Tenzin, what was it like from your point of view? You won a lottery to come here when you were uh, <laughs> quite young, 20 years old. What was that like? Um, it was um, it was very um, unique uh, opportunity. Um, I've never imagined that uh, in my life uh, that I'll go to U.S. and I'll get to, you know, go to U.S. And it was a Good and a big surprise, uh, you know, uh, winning the lottery. You won. Uh, you you didn't speak English really, period, at all when you got here. Yeah, I mean, uh, our, the school we went to uh, was an English medium, but the uh, the uh, the language uh, spoken was uh, Tibetan and uh, Hindi, and uh, so yeah, the English wasn't the first or the second language; it was probably the third language. <laughs> now. Uh, you had an audience with the, the Dalai Lama before you left, and yes. what was what was that like? What was <coughs> what was the intention here with the project? Yes, uh, the the audience was for all the uh, one thousand uh, Tibetans, and we were uh, presented a little statue of uh, Buddha uh, to each of us, and uh, His Holiness uh, reminded us uh, that uh, we are going uh, to America as an ambassador for the uh, 6 million uh, Tibetan people. And, uh, you know, survival-wise, uh, we were doing okay, reasonably okay uh, in India. But the uh, situation uh, of Tibet as a whole, uh, Tibetan language, culture, is in dire situation in Tibet. And uh, His Holiness uh, reminded us again and again that uh, you're going to a uh, land of freedom, a uh, land of opportunity, uh, but don't get dissolved in there, and uh, you're going there as an ambassador, and make sure you speak out, stand up, and uh, do your uh, job as an ambassador uh, into the United States. And you have certainly done that. You've gone on hunger strikes. You have you know, led the Tibetan Alliance and brought all the Tibetan culture to, 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 to the people here. You've done a mess. Uh, you know— I just, you know, I'm. Uh, first of all, I like to uh, thank uh, Jerome, uh, yourself, and your team, and WBZ NPR. For years and years, you have covered our struggle uh, on your radio station, and this really means a lot uh, to us as a uh, Tibetan immigrant into the United States. Um, we feel kind of proud to be part of the NPR uh, family. Um, you know, uh, it's. Uh, uh, our struggle inside Tibet, uh, Tibetans are giving up their life for the cause of Tibet. And uh, for me to walk for Tibet, um, you know, doing a hunger strike, you know, once in a while, <laughs> it's not a big deal. Uh, it's, it's very simple, easy. Uh, you know, um, it's just I wish and I could, you know, I could do more. 
for the cause of Tibet, and that's how, how strongly I feel for the cause of Tibet. And that's the reason I'm in the United States, uh, standing up for the Tibetan cause. Uh, it's interesting. You've had a million jobs since you've uh, been here. I was reading your resume, and you, you worked with uh, Miller Stalick at Facets for a while. You worked, uh, worked yes, at the yes, Facets yes. video thing. Yes, I, for a while. I love. I, I actually I have a little bit of a movie and a video experience uh, back in India. I started my own business when I was fourteen years old, and uh, business was doing good. You know, um, survival <laughs> was. Uh, you know, in India, I had my own business and uh, I was doing okay. But, uh, you know, this is not about me. It is about the cause. It is about uh, a national uh, uh, struggle. Uh, Tibet as a nation is struggling right now. And, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, yeah, so because of that, I did uh, land a job, uh, you know, job in uh, Facets Multimedia, which is in Fullerton, and it's a great place to work, good people, you get to watch a lot of good movies, and uh, Milo, she's <laughs> the, a great manager. The best part. I'm talking with Tenzin Jamyang, and he is uh, with the Tibetan community here in Chicago. He's a past president of the Tibetan Alliance, and Jeff Libman is here. He, 25 years ago, was the executive director of the Tibetan Resettlement Project, and they're marking 25 years of the Tibetan community in Chicago with an exhibit. It's opening on Friday night. It's it's called Tibetans in Chicago, A Story of Resilience and Success. What's, what's at the expi- exhibition there, Jeff? Well, the exhibition is really sort of a document of 25, it's actually a bit more than 25 years of the Tibetan community since their resettlement here. So there's some beautiful portraits, large uh, size portraits of members of the community from children up to the senior members of the community. There are photographs from the community itself over the period of these 25 years, whether it was participating in the Skokie Festival of Cultures with dance. There are tons of newspaper clippings uh, from the Chicago press documenting different stages of the Tibetan community here. Um, there are letters that Tibetans wrote home about their experience immigrating here. So it's really a, a nice retrospective look at how the community has grown, and it has grown and been successful uh, in these past couple of decades. Now, the, there's a, the Tibetan Alliance building is in Evanston, Tenzin. Yes, what, yes. What, what goes on up there usually? Uh, generally, we have on the weekends, uh, Saturdays, we have music class and a tuition, uh, English you know, tuition. And then uh, on Sundays, we have a Tibetan language, culture, and a music and a dance uh, you know, uh, classes on Sundays. And uh, that actually, that community center is actually uh, presented to us by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, and uh, and also Tibetan community is a uh, self-sustaining uh, community, uh, just like Tibet. You know, uh, Tibet on the uh, world scale, uh, scale uh, it may, on the according to the world standard, uh, Tibet may look like a poor country. But uh, 1959, before the Chinese occupied Tibet, Tibet was a self-sustaining. We do not have any loan to any country. So, uh, you know, we we're, were proud of that, you know. And, and our community is functioning just like that. It is self-sustaining. And, uh, you know, our members uh, contribute a uh, monthly fee. And we do not have support from uh, any uh, organizations like nonprofit or um, profit organizations. Uh, it's completely self-sustaining. And, uh, and the parents, uh, you know, uh, pay fees to uh, have kids in the classes. 
Um, Do the kids like coming? Is it? Uh, I mean, you're watching a generation of children now, Tibetans, grow up in the United States. Uh, do they want to latch onto their Tibetan? Culture? Oh my God! The, you know, the, it's unbelievable. I have four kids myself, and uh, every uh, Saturday, Sunday, if you go there, and not just my kids, uh, every every children uh, when they're at the community center, they don't want to go home. <laughs> oh, that's and a good sign. I, I, I don't know <laughs> what it is, you know, and uh, it's just the love of the community. Uh, is so strong that uh, kids, they feel uh, attached to each other. Now, uh, what's gonna, uh, there's going to be an opening on Friday night, and it sounds like that'll be a lot of fun. There'll be uh, events. Yeah, so there'll things. be a uh, dance performance. Um, some of the children are putting out a dance performance there. There'll be a welcome by a member of the Tibetan Alliance of Chicago. There'll be refreshments. But the exhibit uh, on Friday night will be from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock, the opening. But it's going to be at the Noise Cultural Arts Center for three months. It doesn't close until October, uh, August, sorry, August 23rd. So people are free to walk in at any time and, uh, and enjoy the exhibit. There's a lot of um, text to sort of walk people through, to explain a bit about the resettlement project, about how that f- led into the Tibetan Alliance, because... Originally, the Tibet Resettlement Project was run by all Americans, and over time, we slowly transitioned that into the Tibetan Alliance, which is fully Tibetan-run. Um, and self-sustaining, I hear. Yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> now, the, um, I wanted to ask one last question about how you feel this has all worked out, because it seems like things have worked out pretty great for Tibetans in Chicago. Uh, the Tibet issue, it's and you know, it just seems to have gotten worse over 25 years. How do you, how do you re- kind of deal with that? Um, it's it's tough. It's a tough time uh, because of Chinese uh, influence is growing all over the world, and the the sad part is the you have to deal with it. You know, the corporation and uh, politics is mixing together. It's hurting uh, people, not just Tibetan people, uh, struggling all over the world. You know, and that's the sad part of uh, Chinese uh, power growing around the world. Uh, le- let me say this uh, uh, also. Um, I, I just like to thank all the American people who have helped over the how, hundreds and thousands of people uh, because of their help. You know, Tibetans are thriving in Chicago uh, for over 25 years. You know, uh, I remember uh, Jeff, uh, you know, when he was at the uh, um, one of the office when we first came in 1993, he looked like somebody came out from the college or something. And here they are, you know, uh, trying to help somebody. Uh, they cannot pronounce our names. <laughs> and yet they're there trying to help us, you know, uh, settle, find a job, uh, you know, land a job, uh, uh, have an apartment ready to stay. And then, you know, almost like a parent, you know, uh, holding kids hand and teaching things how things work in the United States. And it was very hard, you know, touching. It was very, uh, you know, it's just, I can never forget uh, these people, what they have done for the Tibetan people. Uh, be, if it wasn't for them, uh, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, right now in the, our community, uh, one girl going to uh, Cornell University, the other girl uh, wow. just went, you know, uh, Stanford University. Wow. Uh, and we have a lot of people working in the Cook County, um, you know, and uh, now Whole Foods, uh, you know, uh, we have a lot of Tibetan people working in there. And, you know, it, it's just, if, if it wasn't for the Chicago, you know, this is one thing I just want to add on top of ours uh, that um, a lot of people uh, in my driving job, you know, ask me, like, what's good about Chicago? And a lot of people get confused. They think the weather, the city, this and that. I can say this clearly. It is not the weather. It's not the city. It is the people of Chicago make this city great. Well, and, you know, that's what I felt, you know. 
And, Tenzin, that's awesome. And uh, it's been great to see you and Jeff. And I really you know, hope people get up to the exhibit. It's going to be there all summer. It's going to be three months at the Noise Cultural can, can Center I, can in Edmondson. Can I add one more? Tenzin, let it rip. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, if, if anybody wants to be part of the Tibetan community, we are located at 2422 Dempster in Evanston. If you want to learn more about Tibetan, just log into TibetanAlliance.com. And then also we are in the Facebook, uh, Tibetan Alliance of Chicago. And we always need help. Please help us prosper. And thank you so much, Chicago. Hooray to Chicago. Tenzin Jamyang is originally from Tibet, and he's a past president of the Tibetan Alliance. Jeff Libman, 25 years ago, was executive director of the Tibetan Resettlement Project. Great to see you guys, and congratulations on the exhibit at the Noise Cultural Center running the next three months. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Coming up after the break, we will have Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson. She's going to drop by with members from two bands that beautifully blend their Latin influences into their sound. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. There's all kinds of talk about building a wall down along the southern border. Lord, and if such nonsense should come true, then we'll have to knock it down. Cause that idea won't fly so high as a wingless bird in a rock hard sky. So no, sorry, we won't comply. We're going to stand our ground. To love thy neighbor as thyself is a righteous law to live by. They break us up so they stay strong And ignorantly we're strung along Until we meet our doom Yes, our leaders are so ripe with sin They feed us chance to rope us in But someday soon we'll find, my friends That we're pinned against the this is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson, the host and producer of Beat Latino on Vocalo. Great to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. We've got a huge treat today. We've got like um, two bands to talk about, which is pretty amazing. Um, it's like, you know, having to choose between your favorite children. So I decided we decided not to choose. We Absolutely. Have them both. We're doing them both. <laughs> So uh, the band we were just hearing from, describe their describe them and introduce their their uh, lead singer. Here. Yes, we've got Joe Troop, and he's driving. He's on the way here. And um, this is Che Apalache. That's what we heard, and that was The Wall. And uh, Che is from North Carolina, from Piedmont, and uh, took his bluegrass to Argentina. Uh, he emigrated to Argentina, and he has a band with uh, Latin American musicians, and it's Che Argentinian Apalache. And, and Che is driving for his show at the Old Town School of Folk Music tonight, and then he's appearing Sunday also at the Avondale Music Hall. Che Apalache and Joe Troop, uh, nice to talk with you, Joe. Yeah, likewise, Jerome and Catalina. Hey. Uh, your your story is wild. Um, uh, explain, how did you end up in Argentina teaching, teaching Latin grass? Well, I, uh, as a kid, I was really interested in the immigrant community in North Carolina. So I was learning, you know, I learned Spanish from, from people that I just met growing up. And uh, it just, you know, became more and more of an interest. So I decided to do my undergrad in Spain. And that coincided with the collapse of the Argentinian economy. So there were you know, thousands of immigrants to Spain at that time. And I, I just sort of haphazardly became very involved in the Argentinian community there and later in life decided to go down to Argentina because I, I just kind of 
I guess uh, I vibed well with Argentinians. And I've been there for almost a decade now, so the shoe fits. <laughs> so, uh, and yet the topics of your song, just like the one we just heard about the wall, um, are, are immigrant activism. Tell us a little bit more how, about how that happened, Joe. Well, I just think it's the it, it, it hits me in a sensitive area because I know a lot of undocumented immigrants. I've I'm I just I hear these horror stories firsthand, and and I think it should be brought to people's attention. So it inspires me to to write songs to sort of shine a a, a different kind of light on these people who are so vehemently, um, I guess caricaturized the, I mean, the, the immigrant community in North Carolina is very vibrant and very diverse, but people get it rarely gets uh, any media attention whatsoever other than, you know, um, very prejudiced media attention. Well, it's a, it's an amazing message and it's, it's encased in this like really classic or what we think of as classic Americana. And, uh, it's, it'll be such a treat to see you tonight at Old Town and, uh, then also Sunday. Yeah, the, the song we heard was a, kind of a, a classic Appalachian uh, acapella thing, but uh, right. a lot of it you, you're blending. And we should listen to a, a, a song where that's kind of Latin grass, as you call it, as, as you invented, apparently. Um, let's hear some more of Che Appalachia. The Dreamers. Two little girls skirt along in tow. He was crying on her shoulder Their long journey's end Was Yadkin County Tobacco Road, North Carolina Where a grief-stricken daddy Prayed through desperate nights His family'd soon be reunited ay ay, ay mi That's the Dreamer from Che Appalachia, and they are performing at the Old Town School of Folk Music tonight, and then at uh, on the weekend on Sunday at the Avondale Music Hall on Milwaukee Avenue. Thanks, Joe, for pulling over and talking yeah, to us for sure. a few minutes. Thanks so much. That's my pleasure. I'll, I'll enjoy hearing more of your music. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you, guys. Forgiving an immigrant child must face a life where dreaming is forbidden. Lord, when all is said and done, and this time. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald here with Catalina Maria Johnson on Global Notes. We're talking about two bands today. And what is band number two? They're with us in the studio here. They're right with us in the studio. They've been very quiet sitting in the corner waiting for this moment, making movies. Kansas City, Missouri, Panama, and Mexico representing. And uh, it's a treat to have you. Hey, guys. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> hey. Uh, Tell us about yourselves. You've got a, a very interesting uh, story. You're from Kansas City by way of two of you by Panama. And the other two, Mexico. <laughs> yeah. um, our families, our family moved to, to, to Kansas City when we were six years old. We never expected to stay there, but as life happened, um, we just ended up being raised in Kansas City. And when we met the Sharan family, who has been an integral part of the Mexican community for years, we realized that... Um, we, we, I guess we, we found the right link to express our voice 
as immigrants in a in a middle American town. <laughs> <laughs> now you. Um I was reading a, a comment that said uh, if you'd asked you seven years ago if you were a political band, you would have said no. But now you are. Uh, you, you've reacted. Um, we were just hearing Joe Troop say, well, I reacted to what I saw. I had to do it. Well, I, I think actually we've been doing the same thing for nine or ten years. But I, I was afraid of the word political because I, I uh, thought that with it came um, all these – these connotations of of um, it just delves it goes if you're not careful it goes from social criti- critique to propaganda that line gets blurry and people try to use it and I, I guess in in my naivety I thought well we can talk about social injustice and not be political but the reality is the only way to change society is you have to you have to play ball with politics and you have to support the right the right causes. Uh, on your new album, you've got a song coming out with uh, Ruben Blades, the salsa great from Panama, and you're getting people to participate in the singing of it on the internet. People are people can go and uh, kind of lob in and, and say what they're they're singing about too. Yeah, we're uh, the whole campaign was the song is called No Te Calles, and Ruben came. He actually shouted at us, shouted out. Um, at the Latin Grammys a year ago, and we, since that moment on, we collaborated with him. We've done some songs. We're about to come out with a new album called Americana, where he's, you know, helped us out tremendously. And so that song, Notek Calles, you can have the website. It's called Notek Calles World, or or I'm sorry, world, And that's where you can find it, and you can sing along to our song. And you can add your own words to it, and hopefully uh, that'll encourage you to be able to speak up about any, any injustices or truths that you have. Right, and uh, no te calles is don't stay silent. Do not be silent. Do not Correct. be silent. Well, we've got all these instruments and stuff sitting around. So we're not going to be we, silent. We should, we should not be silent. <laughs> well, this is a an amazing song, an amazing story. This is a 30-year-old tune, dusted off, created originally and archived by Ruben Blades, the great salsa and just general music great from Panama, and Lou Reed. And it's an allegory uh, of with the Latin American Delilah seducing the United States. It's an immigration anthem written so prescient, you know, written 30 years ago. And we've got them, everybody live, making movies in the studio to sing Delilah for us, coming up off their new album. Yeah, yeah this is a really exciting thing to be a part of because we're just like a small part of this song's story. Um, but we've never done it acoustic like this, so here we go. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> one, two, one, two, three, Born. When 
Sounded great. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, you should go acoustic all the time. It's all this hard rock and stuff. Lighter um, to carry. I like that. <laughs> making movies uh, live in our studio, and they'll be at Subterranean on North Avenue tonight at eight o'clock. And you get to hear, I'm sure, an amped up version of that. That's right. And we actually, the, our album comes out May 24th, but we'll have our CDs in the house, and uh, so it's kind of a, a secret pre-release party. You know, our first show with Juan Carlos was in Chicago. Yeah, we uh, played at the House of Blues, opening up for Alex Cuba and uh, Atercio Pelados. Wow! And so, and then everything since then, five hundred, no, almost six hundred. Who knows how many shows later we're we're here and still doing it. We love Chicago. Yeah, and it's interesting. You've caught the attention of Steve Berlin of Los Lobos, who then kind of mentored you, and now of Ruben Blades. So definitely, all the the greats (laughs) love your sound. And, um, yeah, we're very lucky. We're very fortunate to have them on our side and to be able to mentor us and uh, lead us on to uh, this path that we're we're starting. It's a brand new path for us, and we're excited to just be on it. With, with Delilah, I literally feel like a little kid standing on the shoulder or sitting on the shoulder of, <laughs> of a parent because it, it, we, with Steve Berlin guiding us and Ruben and Lou Reed writing this song, it's like we're just a little part of a, something that's already been moving for many years. So Steve Berlin uh, produced the new album? Is that- he did, yeah. He co-produced it with our manager, Ben Jonas, but he's produced the other two albums, 
Um, I was just texting him this morning because he's such a sweetheart. We have a, an art mentorship program in Kansas City. And when he's in town in two weeks, he's going to do a one-on-one session with one of our students. He's amazing. So we're grateful to have him in our lives. Well, and I want to shout out that you have uh, been a really strong participants in bringing, for example, the kind of folk rock sound to uh, Folk Arts Alliance uh, and the, in the Kansas City, which has its headquarters there, and as part of their conference, the FAI conference. So you've really done a lot of uh, kind of crossing of different kinds of borders, kind yeah, of making sure that American music includes this well, side of for it. For sure. Well, we come from that type of background. My uh, my mother has a Mexican folkloric dance group, and she's had it for over 40 years. Me and my brother have danced uh, along with my o- older brothers, and actually we're wearing jackets that we <laughs> we, we sported Many years ago, oh, your folkloric, dance yeah, our folkloric dance. Well, I saw on your uh, on your tiny desk thing, you did a, you did some dancing. Yeah, and so we we like to bring those elements along with um, the Panamanian uh, uh, elements of the music. I mean, we we've traveled there uh, for the past five years, and every time I go back, I'm always uh, reminded how similar the folklore from Panama and Mexico uh, tie together. And so I remember the first time I saw actually uh, Panamanian folklore, I was like, I told Enrique, I'm like, this is there's so many things that can be done within our both of our cultures, and we can mix this together and, and, and make something. Well, great. and in fact, this is uh, actually a big part of some of the songs of the, the new album includes Flor de Toloache, which mm. is um, New York's uh, one and only all-female mariachi. And uh, actually, the song that we're going to play uh, when we start to go out includes Flor de Toloache, as well as Ruben Blades. So. Yeah, they're they're an amazing group. Um, we met uh, Mireya at actually at, at one of the folk alliances. And we were part of, of the story of her coming to that because that is part of our mission as a as a band is these things like we, the name of the album is called Americana because with that, a K with a K so you pronounce it in Spanish because the 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 concept that American music is only folk um, by a certain kind of European immigrant is silly right if American music should represent everything on these both of these continents and. If you actually study the music, it's so fluid. They all influence each other. Blues and Cuban son are like interlinked. They're cousins. Kissing cousins. (laughs) Yeah, they're cousins. Same with folklore in Panama. And so that is one of our messages as a band. More important maybe than any political message is to remind us, hey, human beings, we're all part of this great soup, this great mix of humanity. We're talking with Enrique Chi. He's the vocalist and guitarist of Making Movies and Juan Carlos Chauron. He is the percussionist for uh, Making Movies and Plays Keys. Uh, do you guys want to do another tune? Is that what we're doing here? Are we going to? I think we're gonna, we are. Are we going to play one out of uh, out of a CD player or something? <laughs> <laughs> is that what you guys still do that? <laughs> well, it, actually, yeah. When you're in the, in the studio, it is. So, um, well, th- this is. There's a few songs that have been released, a few singles, um, with Ruben Blades and with Flor de Toloache. So this is Como Perdonar. We have uh, a... And, and just tell us, because I think sometimes the meaning of these words are lost. Tell us a little bit more about... It means how do you forgive? How can we forgive? How does one forgive? Tell us a little bit, kind of like summarize the song for us. Well, I was specifically thinking about the things happening at the border right now. And um, when the the passing of those two young children, I was thinking about I was the same age as they are when I moved to the United States. And just by mere luck, I didn't have those those same suffering. You know, um, I'm here today. I was thinking about that when when Ruben entered in the song and he kind of rewrote the intro, he reminded me that that the reality is we all have to learn how to forgive 
as a mankind, the, the injustices and the suffering that we've all caused upon each other, whether by borders or any other reason. And so that's kind of the feeling of the song. It's a question. Is there a religion? Is there a prayer? Is there a song that could teach us to forgive? All right. Enrique Chi is the uh, vocalist of Making Movies. You can see them tonight at the Subterranean on North Avenue. They'll be playing at 8 o'clock. And the name of the album, once again, is... Americana. And the website that where people can sing along uh, is... So it's notecales.world, N-O-T-E-C-A-L-L-E-S dot world. And uh, you could also visit our website, makingmoviesband.com. All right. Great to meet you guys. And keep up the great work. You, you've got a great sound, and I uh, wish you all the success on the planet. Thank you. Uh, let's go out with a little music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. And uh, don't forget that on Friday we're going to have a live broadcast from City Grange at 5500 Northwestern Avenue. We're going to get our gardening on and do a little uh, outdoors loving for springtime. Uh, if you want to join us, drop by at City Grange at 5500 Northwestern Avenue on Friday at noon. Thanks a lot, Catalina Maria Johnson, for another great Global Notes. We pulled off two bands in one second. It's a miracle. (laughs) It really was near miraculous. This is Making Movies and Como Perdonar. How does one forgive? I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Thanks a lot to Mike Gilmore and Shelley Steffens for engineering today and Kyle White Sullivan. Thanks a lot.